Russell Brand is a British actor and comedian and best-selling author. He's now a multimillionaire. He was born into poverty and he's achieved wealth and fame uh, and now lives a, a rock and roll lifestyle accompanied by a string of glamorous women. He was asked last year that if he had to write a letter to himself as a teenager, what he would say. And this is what he wrote. Hello, young man. We've not spoken for a while because I've necessarily buried you beneath fathomless strata of bravado and glamour. It will be good to have a chat, though, because I know, of course I know, that you're lonely and sad and that you think too much. In fact, you do a lot of things too much. For you, Sonny Jim, too much is going to become a bit of a theme. At the moment, it's too much chocolate and a bit too much television. But this helter-skelter of excess will be steadily gaining momentum and pulling in new obsessions as it goes along. Drugs, pornography, booze, sex, fame, other people's approval are all going to be prized and pursued over the coming years. The problem is, and I know you don't know this, you're, getting, you're good at getting the stuff you want. So everything on that list will come into your life. And it falls to me to tell you that none of that stuff is going to help with the loneliness, the thinking, and the sadness. You know that you want to show off for a living and that you never want to be poor again. And you know you can make people laugh. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to take drugs or drink or go crazy chasing girls all the time. You hate being told what to do. No, take all the drugs you want. Drink yourself into police cells and hospitals. Talk yourself into fights that are going to be hard to talk your way out of as you plunge into the powders and the rocks and the bottles looking for something that's not there. It's going to take you to some dark places and you're going to meet some desperate people in crack houses and whorehouses, in parties so glamorous that they're lit by flashbulbs and other people's envious attention. In all those places, you're going to see the same sadness and feel the same loneliness. Do it all. Go nuts. You're going to do it anyway. Just know that it can't make you happy. In fact, he writes, no externally acquired thing can help you. No externally acquired thing can help you. Now, we all know it's a cliche to say that fame and money don't bring you happiness. And you may be thinking, I'd give it a shot. But this letter was written by a real person, and it is very honest, searingly honest. He's learned that sadness and loneliness go much, much deeper than people think, and that a party lifestyle just covers it up for a while. The truth is, Russell Brand is in a mess, and he doesn't know how to sort out his own heart. David Foster Wallace was a professor of English literature and another award-winning author. He saw very clearly what Brand sees, and he said that it was a problem to do with worship. Some of you have heard these words before. He said, everybody worships, everyone on the planet. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you're going to tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over other people to numb you to your own fear. 
Worship your intellect, always being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. You'll end up feeling a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You see what Wallace is saying? We're in a mess, and we don't know how to sort out our own hearts. Now, Russell Brand and David Foster Wallace may seem a million miles away from the world of the Bible and 2,000 years, but in fact, the Bible was written for just such people and just such problems. People who realize that they are in a mess and can't sort out their own heart. People like you and me. The Gospel of John is one of four official biographies of Jesus. John says at the end that he wrote it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's written it so that you'll believe and you'll have life, which is another way of saying you're in a mess, but Jesus Christ can sort life out, and knowing him will make all the difference, and it will restore your life in time to what it was meant to be. Now, we see this in this passage today, and I think uh, there are three things that jump out. So here are three headings. They're all so similar, you can remember them. The greatest messenger, the greatest mess, and the greatest message. They all begin with greatest mess, and there's a little bit of difference at the end. The greatest messenger, the greatest mess, and the greatest message. First of all, the greatest messenger. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born to a woman. Here he is in verse 28. Have a look down there on, uh, in John chapter 1. Uh, this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. He's out there, out in the wilderness, preaching away, and people are coming to him, and he gets them, and he plunges them into the river. Who is this guy? That's what everyone's asking. Who is he? He cuts quite a curious figure. John was not known as a fashion icon. His clothes were definitively retro. He wore an outfit made out of camel's hair with a big leather belt sort of tying it all together, and he never cut his beard or his hair because of a vow that was taken when he was a baby. Now, to you, that combination of camel's hair, leather belts, and long hair and beard might sound like the lead singer of a 70s cover band. But to the people of this time, John's clothes make a statement. And the statement is, he is a prophet. He's a prophet, a spokesman from God with a special message. Now this John is a national sensation. People travel from all around, for miles and miles around, to hear him preach. They're coming from, in busloads from the capital city, Jerusalem. They're coming, in fact, from the whole region around. And the impact of his, his teaching lasted for years and years. Thousands of people are coming. And they're hearing him. And they're, they're hearing what he says. And their hearts are being stirred up. They're weeping. And they're asking him to plunge them into the water. To be baptized. Now, that's not what people usually did on their day off. What's this with the baptism? It's a very powerful visual image, a symbol of cleansing. It's a powerful visual way of saying, I know I've sinned, I know I'm filthy morally, and I need to be cleaned up. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 6 even makes the link quite explicit. It says, confessing their sins, they were baptized. So John's preaching was very powerful. We get the impression that he didn't really take any prisoners. In Luke chapter 3, we get a sample of his message. This is how he starts off his sermon. 
he sees the crowd coming and he says, you brood of vipers. What a great way to start a sermon. I'm looking at you and you're just a bunch of snakes. And then we read about some of the people that he impacted. Tax collectors. Now these were hardened uh, guys who were collaborating with the Roman powers and were ripping off their own people. They were lining their own pockets. These are guys who don't care about their own people. These guys were coming absolutely broken hearted and asking John, how can we change? Soldiers. Soldiers were coming to John and saying, what are we going to do? We're, you know, we're working in, in this, this violent job. Tell us how to, how to operate within it. Not sensitive, touchy-feely guys, hard men. And John's message moved them profoundly. They were cut to the heart. They come to him and they say, tell us how to sort out the mess we've made of our lives. Tax collectors, soldiers, everyone came. It's a national sensation. What a voice he must have had. In the 18th century, there was an English preacher called George Whitfield. Whitfield was booted out of the Church of England churches, and so he went and preached in the fields and the marketplaces and at the coal mines in the outdoors. And at times he preached to crowds of between 10 and 20,000 people without amplification. George Whitfield didn't need one of these things. His voice was so powerful. People actually traveled just to hear him speak. One of the greatest actors of the day said that the way that George Whitfield said Mesopotamia could make you cry. <laughs> now John the Baptist had that kind of impact. The kind of impact most preachers only dream of. He's the Billy Graham of the first century. If you came on a bus, they'll wait. So everyone's talking about this guy. Something of an enigma. No one really knows who he is. So the Jewish leaders based in the capital city, Jerusalem, are quite nervous. They've seen populist leaders come before, and they've seen how it sometimes works out, and they're really very jittery about where it all might lead. Um, we get a window later on in John's Gospel into what they're thinking um, when they, they react to Jesus. Chapter 11, um, verse 45, uh, they're all meeting, and it says here, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is the top council, the city council. Now listen to this. What are we accomplishing? They asked. If, here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. That's what they're afraid of. If you stir up too much trouble, if you get people all riled up, the Romans will come, and then it's game over for our people. Very, very nervous. So about 200 years before this, the Jewish people were under the, the, uh, the boot of a different regime, a different empire, and they'd stirred up a popular revolt, and they'd actually won against all the odds. They'd kicked this empire out 200 years before, and they'd start their, their own monarchy called the Maccabeans and they'd ruled their own nation for about a hundred years and then in 63 BC about 90 years before this the Romans had come and taken over and now they're just a small little outlying Roman province with very little power they were an occupied nation and the Romans kept an iron grip but some of them still had that memory of the time when we we stuck it to the man you know, we, we booted out the empire. Maybe we could do it again. So there's this kind of 
uh, under the surface, bubbling around sort of ferment and revolutionary spirit. And some people are looking for a leader, someone who will stand up and say, who's with me? And then they'll go. And that's why all the way through the Gospels you find Jesus having to sort of withdraw and cool things down because they might come and make him a leader by force. And John is the same. And these Jewish leaders see this and they know that if it kicks off, they won't stand a chance against Rome and they want to play it safe. So they hear about a wild man baptizing people in the desert and they see a man of immense charisma and dangerous influence and they think John is like a guy sitting on a keg of gunpowder just about to light a cigar. Anything could happen. So what do they do? They send a committee. It's the launch of an official inquiry sent down from Jerusalem to check John out. And this task force arrived with their clipboards, you know. And they're looking around. It's a bit like Ofsted for teachers here. They're having a good look around and they say, yeah, have you got your lesson plan? And the, but the main question is repeated four times. Who are you? Who are you? Now, in... in Answer to this question, look at verse 20. John, it's a strange thing it says here, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not him. I'm not the guy. Now, what does he mean by Messiah? The word literally means the anointed one. What they would do in the Old Testament days was to take some oil and pour it on the head of a king or a prophet or a priest at the start of their ministry as a way of setting them aside and kind of uh, uh, and inaugurating them and giving them God's blessing and pouring it out on them. And this person, this king, prophet, or priest is going to be uh, serving the people. Now, over the years, the idea of the Messiah, the anointed one, had been narrowed down more and more and more until finally most people were looking for one specific Messiah, one specific anointed one who was a king in the line of the, of the great King David, who would come and sort out the mess that they were in. That's what they were looking for. And many of them were yearning for it. So they're asking, who are you? And the first thing he says is, I'm not the Messiah. So then the committee decide they're going to play 20 questions. You know that game? You've got 20 questions, you've got to get the identity of the person. Uh, those of you who have visited to the British Isles, this is a great game that probably we've invented. Okay, you're not the Messiah. That's one question down. Okay, we've got 19 questions more. All right then, verse 21. Uh, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Nope. Okay, are you the prophet? Nope. <laughs> and they're like, okay, we've used three questions up. What are we going to do? Now, this all looks a little bit random to you and me. Elijah? Prophet, where's all this coming from? But in fact, those questions show us just how great John the Baptist was. How massive his impact was. See, Elijah was the greatest prophet in all of the Old Testament. Many people believe that he'd not died, but was going to come back and lead a new day in God's people's history. In fact, the last verses of the last chapter in the Old Testament in your Bible there, Malachi chapter 4, said that before the final day in world history, the day of judgment, God would send the prophet Elijah and he would turn the hearts of the people to love one another again so that they would escape judgment. So some people had read that, they knew it by heart, and they're waiting for this prophet Elijah to come. When's he coming back? And as for the prophet... Well, if there was one person greater than Elijah in the Old Testament, 
It was Moses. Moses, the great leader, the hero who led the people out of Egypt in the Exodus under God, led them through the wilderness, taken them to Mount Sinai, gone up alone, received God's word, brought it down, given the law to the people, signed the covenant treaty. Moses, the greatest leader. And Moses too was a prophet, and he was a prophet in a league all of his own. And Moses had predicted a time of trouble after his death and said in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So their expectations again. Could this be the prophet? They're seeing all the signs. And John says on both counts, no, I'm not Elijah. and I'm not the prophet. So they say, okay, verse 22, finally, just who are you? Come on, we're giving up the game now, we've lost. But we need to go back to our bosses with some sort of answer. Just tell us your name. John replies, not with a name, but with a quote. Verse 23, I'm the voice. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, these guys know this quotation. This isn't the first time they've heard it. They know it well. It's from the great prophet Isaiah, whose words had shaped the nation. And they know, therefore, that this is a daring claim. It's a claim that God, the Lord, is coming back to sort things out. And John's job is to be a kind of a town crier, a herald. He's a foghorn. He's a siren. He's sounding an alarm. And he's saying, he's blasting out, make straight the paths for, for him, for the Lord. He's coming through. It's clear the way. He's coming back to sort things out. John's saying, you, you all think that I'm great? My job is just to make the road. I'm the guy with the roll-up cigarette, the high-vis jacket, the tattoos, and the big biceps who's digging the road. I'm a navvy. I'm just saying, make the road straight. Get ready. In fact, I'm just a voice. Not pointing at myself, but pointing at somebody else. The greatest messenger, and this is his message, he's coming. He's coming. The Lord is coming back to his suffering people, and we will have a better tomorrow. He's coming, and I'm just a voice. Now, this committee is still scratching their heads because this isn't quite the answer that they were looking for. And some of them are Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a pressure group, very powerful, made up of business people who cared a lot about the nation and cared about God. And in verse 25, they chip in with another question. All right, then, they say, so why are you baptizing? Why are you plunging people in under the water? And what they're really saying here is, where do you get your credentials? Where do you get the, the authority to do the things that you're doing? And John's reply is really amazing, actually. Because he could have used this as an opportunity to make himself look good. Couldn't he? But he always points away from himself. And in verses 26 and 27, this is how he regards himself. He says, I'm, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Can I borrow your shoe? <laughs> now, in the ancient world, you probably wouldn't have picked up somebody's sandal. Why? No sewage system. Who in, in a rich house goes to somebody and takes their shoe and takes it off for them at the front door and washes their feet? Only the absolute lowest of the low servant. Thank you, Dave. 
His shoe's clean, by the way. The lowest of the low servants. And John's saying, do you know what? This one who's come in after me, he's so great that I'm not even worthy to do that job for him, to take off his shoes. He's so great. A truly great one is coming. In fact, he says, he's already here. He's already here. You just don't know who he is yet. And everybody's probably looking around and thinking, I hadn't noticed anyone looking particularly grand. Who is this great one? How is he linked to the promise of Isaiah, you know, the make straight the way for the Lord? Everybody here wants to know who John the Baptist is, but John the Baptist isn't interested in talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is only interested in talking about Jesus. And the next day, he gets this big moment because he sees Jesus, not for the first time, because he has already baptized Jesus. But Jesus is coming, and this is the moment he needs to make his big announcement. And he says something that sums up the whole Christian message in one sentence. A single sentence that sums up the good news that we believe. Verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's that's our whole, all the good news, everything we believe in one sentence. Now to understand why this is such good news, uh, you need to understand something about sin. Because the good news is that the lamb has taken his way. So what is this sin? And this is my second point. The greatest messenger announces the greatest mess. The greatest mess. What is sin? Well, it's described in various different ways in the Bible. It's described as breaking God's rules. It's described as going against God's will. But also it's described as perversion, as distorting the fabric of the created world. It is really living life not the way things were meant to be, going against God's created order. Let me give you an example. This week, I was um, taking a break from my sermon preparation and I went down to the local shops and walked down the alleyway down the back of our house that runs between our house and Burton Road. And as I was walking along, sort of minding my own business, I saw a handbag sort of on its side. I mean, they get quite a bit of rubbish down the alley, but it's unusual to see a mulberry handbag. And I was thinking, oh, and I still carried on walking. And then I saw a mulberry purse matching. Now, my wife once asked me to look into buying her a mulberry purse and let me tell you, we didn't have the budget for it. And I thought, that's weird. Why has that been left there in the rain? And then I realized that scattered right the way down the alleyway, all the way down to the bottom, were pieces of somebody's life. There was um, a loyalty card for a coffee shop and a Shell Drivers Club card and some library cards with kids' names on and some receipts and a diary with handwriting in about things to do and take the kids to school. And, and um, there was a, a letter there, and I looked inside the letter because I wanted to know where the bag was from, and it was a hospital letter for a child who was sick. And there's a pair of sunglasses, but all the bank cards and all the credit cards, all the cash, gone. And I found the address eventually and took the bag back round the corner. And when I got there, one of my neighbours opened the door. So it's all getting a bit surreal at this moment. She was house-sitting for the lady whose bag had been stolen. And I took the bag and all the contents, everything I'd found, and gave it to her. And she was really, really shocked. 
Just shocked. Kept repeating herself. She said, well, I can't believe this has happened. I don't know how it's happened. The owner of the bag is actually in a, at a funeral in Ireland. And I'm house-sitting for her and looking after the dog. Now, my neighbor is actually heavily pregnant. She was out here. She started breathing a bit in a sort of shock. So I, I thought, I'm going to have to deliver a baby if this carries on. She says, I'm going to have to send her a text. What a text to receive on your way out of a funeral. By the way, your bag and purse were stolen and emptied. Make sure you cancel all your cards. Now, you, we, we all know about theft. Theft happens all the time. But when you're faced with it, kind of face to face, and you find it, actually, it's really disturbing. Somebody who will never be caught has wronged another person. They've invaded their life, broken into their car, taken their bag, and taken their property. There's something malicious about it that's so casual. There's an utter disregard for another person's humanity. There's a willingness to harm someone for your own desires. Now, what do you think about people who do that? What do you think about the drunk driver who takes a chance and ends up killing a child? What do you think about the children's entertainer who is discovered to have used his position to abuse kids and molest them. What about people who break into a Jewish cemetery and desecrate the graves with swastikas? Now, those are just a few glaring examples of what the Bible calls sin. It's perversion. It's a distortion of the fabric of life. It's going against the Creator's will. It's not the way things were supposed to be. And we can all see the harm, and we can all feel the need, I think, for consequences when it's things like that. Wherever you sit on the political spectrum, I'm sure you agree that those examples deserve more than just therapy. They deserve a penalty. There should be consequences. We know that. We feel it because we're moral beings and we live in a moral universe. It matters to us when six guys gang-rape a girl on a bus in Delhi and they seem to get away with it at the start. It matters to us when people traffic young girls from Eastern Europe and bring them to Britain as sex slaves. It matters, and we feel there should be a penalty. But there's more to this. Because the Bible's analysis of our condition, you and me, is that we're all sinners. We all sin. Probably not in those gross, criminal ways that I just described, but the same principle still applies. We all go against the Creator's will. We all pervert and distort the fabric of life and turn it in to feed ourselves and to please ourselves. We all fail to love other people in the way we ought to. We all sin many, many times daily in thought, word, and deed. And we will therefore face the consequences for our sins from the only truly just and moral being in the universe, the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. In fact, he's the one we're really sinning against. We're damaging his property. In fact, we're starting to experience the consequences of our sin now. That's why Russell Brand feels so sad and lonely. Because that's what sin does. You go against the Creator's will and your heart is breaking. That's why David Foster Wallace knew, although he wasn't a Christian, that without God, anything else you worship will eat you alive. It's the great mess. It's called sin. 
And it is a mess that we are all deeply immersed in. We need a way out, and we can't find a way on our own. You think about all your efforts to change, all your efforts to, to live well. They're so feeble, aren't they? There's a, a, letter, a series of letters to the Times newspaper a number of years ago. What is the problem with the world? And the writer, G.K. Chesterton, eventually sent a very short letter. What is the problem with the world? Dear sir, I am. I'm the problem. And that's why John the Baptist's great message was so wonderful. Here it is again from verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. We've got the greatest messenger. We've got the greatest mess. And now we have the greatest message. Let me finish with this greatest message. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first part of John's gospel, which we've already spent three weeks in, is incredibly rich, and it gives us the most amazing portrait, the most magnificent portrait of Jesus Christ. It's cosmic in its proportions. John says that Jesus Christ is the Word who was there in the beginning, and he was with God, and he was God. He's in the closest possible relationship with God the Father, because he is God the Son in absolute intimacy and he's now made him known. He's lived forever in the closest intimacy and warm love relationship with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. We know him as Jesus and he came all the way down. He came from heaven to earth. He took on our humanity. He became one of us. He, he took on our death. He humiliated himself, even to death on a cross. And he did all of this, John says, because he set his love upon you. And he gave up everything for you. He was rich and he became poor for you. He was pure and he became defiled for you. He was innocent and he became guilty for you. And that this, John says, is grace, not deserved, favor, mercy, benevolence, piled on top of grace, piling up, an endless fountain of grace, the grace of Jesus Christ for lost and broken people. For you. And now John turns and says, you know that awesome Jesus that I was telling you about? Well, here's what he came to do. He came to be a lamb. Look, the lamb of God. Now, the first hearers of this knew all about lambs. They were a most of them rural, agrarian folk. They lived mostly in villages and towns. They were never too far from sheep and lambs out on the hills. They knew exactly what lambs looked like. But they also knew something else, that the lamb had a special purpose. There was a daily offering of a lamb every single day at the Jerusalem temple. It was referred to as the tamid, T-A-M-I-D. Every day the priests, and they would draw lots to, to divide up who did the tasks, the priests would take this lamb, kill it, and sacrifice it, and burn it as an offering to God. They did it every single day without fail, and twice on Saturday and on feast days. Lambs going into the temple, being sacrificed, being burned as an offering. Now John here says Jesus Christ came to be a sacrificial lamb. 
sacrificial lamb. Now just think about lambs for a minute. You know, doesn't that seem a little bit harsh? I mean, couldn't they have picked a kind of a creature that everyone wants to die? <laughs> lambs are so cute. They're so kind of helpless and innocent. And that is the point. Lambs are innocent. They just even look innocent. And so their sacrifice is nothing because of what they've done. It's a substitution. Somebody innocent standing in for the guilty. And this text says that Jesus Christ, look, he's the Lamb of God. No one took his life from him. He came to lay it down of his own accord. He looked down on you where you lay, as we sang, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And his eye diffused a quickening ray and he came to the dungeon where you were to wake, it, wake you up, to fill it with light and to bring you back to himself. He made the journey to find you. He saw you in your lowest point. He saw you in your extremity and he came to find you. But he came as a lamb. The word of God who's seen... It, the, the, uh, the crab nebulae and the Milky Way and the planets being spoken into existence and could do anything he wanted. The, 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 the great almighty one, the powerful one, the word of God through whom all things were made that have been made. This one decided to come as a lamb for you. As a lamb. And as God, he has seen all your sins. He knows every single thing about you. There's nothing hidden. There are no secrets with Jesus. He's seen you in your self-loathing. He's seen you as you really are in your heart of hearts when you're upset and when you say and do things you never would want anyone to know. And now he holds his hand out to you and says, I came as a lamb for you. And you look at his hand and if you were to see him, you would see that it has scar tissue on. It has the prints of nail marks because this lamb was sacrificed on a cross. And he grasps your hand and he pulls you and he reaches you out of the pit, out of the mud, out of the slime and out of the sewer of your sins. And he washes you and cleanses you and gives you new robes to wear. He doesn't shout and shove and bully and coerce. He is lamb-like, gentle and meek. He is humble in spirit the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the New Testament says he bore all our sins in his body on the cross. He bore our sins, all our sins, in his body on the cross. He took them far away, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he has removed them from you. He's buried them in the depths of the sea. God doesn't remember your sins anymore, Christian. Jesus has dealt with them. He took them away. He took away their penalty. He's taking away their power now. And in the future, he will take away even their very presence. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb that God provided takes all our sins in one hit, pays our debts. What a message. A message worthy of the greatest messenger. A message that we need because of the great mess that we're in. A message of the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Now, how do we respond to something like that? I want to speak to two, two groups of people here. The first are people who are Christians. And the second are people who are not yet Christians, but are maybe thinking about it. I guess that's why you're here. 
Christian, you know, there are so many implications of this wonderful news. There's so many implications of this wonderful message that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. And you know, if we keep this in view, if we keep focused, if we look on Jesus as the Lamb of God, it will change us. It will actually make us into different people over time. I can think of three ways. We will be holy, we will be gentle, and we will be a witness. We will be holy. If Jesus Christ came all the way to take your sins and to deal with them in his body on a cross, and he takes them and he pushes them far away from you, and here you are and you've been freed from them, then what are you doing going over there again? You've got no business going back to your sin. The Bible talks about a dog returning to its vomit. We had a dog once. It occasionally used to do that. It is about the most offensive, vile image you can think of. A dog going back to eat, have, have some seconds. Whoa! No thank you. That is what a Christian person going back to their sins is doing. They're going back to the thing that Jesus died to free them from. He took it away. What are you doing going over there? So I want to ask you a hard question. You don't have to answer out loud. Well, don't answer out loud. It might be a bit embarrassing for you. But Christian friend, is there now at this moment in your life a sin that you are entertaining? That sin, you don't just struggle with it. You give in to it. It's not just something that's sort of there in the background that you're fighting with day by day. It is a house guest. And maybe you're justifying it because you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good in lots of other ways. You know, I'm not an axe murderer, but I just have a problem with pornography. And so you have now labeled it as a problem instead of a sin. That thing is the thing that Jesus Christ died for. He took it away. Deal with it. Friends, not just on your own. We're a community of blood-bought people, spirit-anointed people. We're here for each other. Deal with it together. Let's not have dark secrets and places that we go. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Secondly, be gentle. See, the mighty one, the strong one, the powerful one comes as a lamb. <laughs> of all things. I was talking to somebody yesterday about family dynamics. He's from a family that's passive-aggressive. You know, nobody ever raises their voice in his family. But you kind of get the feeling when you've done something wrong. People go quiet. There's a sort of passive-aggressive thing goes on. But he's married into a family where people explode, where people get all the cards on the table instantaneously, where no one's ever in any doubt about what the emotional temperature is because you're feeling it. You're feeling the blisters on your face as they're shouting at you. Now, we all have different ways of dealing with things, but Jesus Christ was lamb-like. He was meek and gentle. I was from a family that uh, I never heard my parents arguing they were very subdued and kind of uh, quiet. And when I went to, uh, into work in the business world, I had no way of dealing with confrontation. I, I couldn't handle it. I used to get very upset. And so I learned a way from, from the world. And this was the way. Get angry. Get hard. And hurt them before they hurt you. And I saw my business colleagues behave, behaving like this. Uh, it, it, instant confrontation. Bang. Push back. Dominate, aggression, force, force of personality. And I've realized, particularly preparing this talk, how inappropriate that is for a Christian. 
If the mighty one became a lamb for me, a gentle, meek creature, one who was so tender he wouldn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering candle wick, gracious, meek man, then how should we be like that? How countercultural that would be, but how winsome that is in a world like ours. Be holy, be gentle, and be a witness. Isn't it amazing? John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman, apart from Jesus Christ, has nothing to say about himself. When he talks, all you hear is Jesus. He just wants to talk about Jesus. He's waiting. He's got this huge following. And later on in the book, all of his followers go and follow Jesus. And you know what? He's really happy about it. He's saying, I must decrease. He must increase. He's so full of this. Look, he says, look over there. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all about Jesus Christ. Friends, can we do that? When very few of us are really evangelists. Very few of us have that kind of boldness and a way of just speaking into a situation. A lot of us are shy. Many of you are quiet personalities. I know that. And we're in a culture where people don't like talking about God or politics. So it's hard to talk about Jesus, isn't it? You know that. Let me encourage you. Still, be a witness. Point to him. Somebody asks, what did you do at the weekend? Just say, yeah, I went to church, really enjoyed it. Got this really good-looking Australian pastor. <laughs> but it's not about him, we're pointing to Jesus. Be holy, be gentle, be a witness. Christians, implications of the Lamb of God. Now, I just want to finish with a word to our friends here who are not Christians, but you're looking in. I've tried to say it as simply as I can today. This is what it's all about. Jesus Christ, the Mighty One, became the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Will you reach out and ask for that forgiveness? It was for you. A man came to our church a few years ago, a young man with a background in drug addiction, homelessness, violence. He was showed wonderful grace and mercy by many people who are here now. And over time, he was embraced by the community in a way he'd never seen before. But his old habits were not dying. And one time he stole the property of someone at the church and nearly got them into trouble with the police. And he was caught, and the police went round and cautioned him. And afterwards, he, never, he didn't come back to a church meeting for some weeks. But some of the members, and some of them are here, you know who I'm talking about, went round to him and said, come back. Come back. We know you did wrong. But you know what? We've forgiven you. And God has too. And he said these words to me. He said, I will never forget this. He said, I can't handle being forgiven. I'd rather take a beating for something I've done than be forgiven. I can't handle this. I'd rather take a beating for something than be forgiven. Why? Because if you take a beating, you're still your own Lord and Saviour. You're still saving yourself by taking the beating. The Christian message is this. Have the humility to know Jesus took the beating for you. He's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. And in just a moment, we're going to celebrate that wonderful, wonderful truth with this bread and wine. But shall we pray first? Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, we wonder and marvel anew at the beauty and simplicity 
and excellence of this wonderful message that you've given. We thank you for John the Baptist, for his testimony, for his willingness to, hum to be humble and to be clear and to take risks, but most of all to point to Jesus and eventually to, for his own life to be taken because he stood up. And Lord, we thank you for the, the solution that you've given to our biggest problem, which is our sin. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he's the Lamb of God. He takes away our sin, and we pray, Lord, give us, by your Spirit, faith to grasp him now, every one of us, to live for him and to love him all our days. We pray it in his name. Amen.